To those of you who are joining us online, to those of you who are at our campuses today, uh, I say welcome and certainly Merry Christmas. I am just saying it as much as possible. It's on. It's, it is the week. Um, today, as well as Christmas Eve, which I hope you'll either join us at one of the campuses or again, we'll be online Uh, Both today and Christmas Eve, I want to serve up a little history to you. Um, For one, I believe when you understand the history, you tend to understand uh, a little more the significance of what we're celebrating this week. How did, did Christmas become what we know it to be now? But also, sometimes I hear, and and I think it's well-meaning Christians who just sort of get fed up with all the other stuff that tends to be around Christmas, and it's sort of this declaration that we shouldn't be celebrating, right, all these traditions that are actually from from false religions or a, a worldly view. And my point is, if you don't know the history then you really don't know how to respond to that kind of a statement. So, today in Christmas Eve, I'm going to start with a little history that's going to lead us to our scripture. So here's where I want to start today. Throughout antiquity, many cultures throughout the world, and I'm going to say especially in those cultures where they're just known for their winters, the winters are harsh, They celebrated what is called the winter solstice, right? Now, if you don't know what the winter solstice is, just wait till tomorrow. Uh, The winter solstice for us is the day of the year where there is the least amount of daylight. That's what's going on right now. It just feels like it's dark, right? When you get up, it feels like it's dark all the time. Usually for us, that's around December 21st or 22nd. This year is 21st. After that day, the daylight begins to what? Get longer, all right? Well, it has always been that that people around that day would perhaps celebrate the sun, uh, kind of a, a rebirth to sunshine because the sunlight's getting longer. Some actually saw it and celebrated it as the birthday of the sun god. Well, a Roman emperor came along by the name of Aurelian, and he created an empire-wide holiday. The year was 274 A.D. The date that he chose was December 25th, and he called it the rebirth of the invincible sun. So you got Rome with this empire-wide holiday. Now, what we also know from history is that when we look at the first centuries of the church, So I'm saying Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, his Holy Spirit comes, the church is born. Those first several centuries of the church, it does not appear as though the church gave a lot of attention to observing a day to celebrate Jesus' birth. However, 
Over time, that idea began to get some traction. However, no suggested date was given. It seemed that, you know, it probably would be a good idea to let's pick a day every year and we celebrate, you know, Christ's miraculous entrance to to the earth. Let's have a nativity day. But again, no date was set. So what happened is you got, you got some who are celebrating it on this day and others who are celebrating it on this day and just kind of this smattering to where in 320 A.D., Pope Julius said, we're going to set a date. And the date that he set was December 25th, and he said, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, anybody see any possible problems here? He picked a day that already had what? A major Roman celebration, a major Roman festival. So this is, this is maybe the way that I would try to frame it for you, see if we can, see if we can really digest this a little bit. Let's say, let's say it's, it, most churches sometime during the year will celebrate the mission that God has given us. We believe Jesus has commissioned us, take this good news, ends of the earth. So, so somewhere in the year, maybe a church picks a Sunday, and on that Sunday, we teach on the mission that God's given us. We celebrate some of the mission that God's accomplished during the year. Um, we would probably call people to, to be generous with their resources to help the mission go forward, and then we would cast vision of where we think God might be taking us in, in the future. For us as a church, we tend to do that in... in all year long in a way, but we kind of have a big deal in December where typically we all come together and we celebrate the mission. But not everybody celebrates it in December. Some might celebrate it in September. Some might celebrate it in the spring. Some might have that kind of day in the summer. So what if a highly respected Christian leader, all right, I would, some name that we would all go, oh yeah, I respect that, that, that person. What if they said, hey, you know what? It'd be a good idea for all churches to like have this day where we celebrate the mission all together. And instead of it just being, you know, any given time, let's everybody celebrate it on July 4th. Two problems. One, July 4th is not usually on a Sunday. That makes it kind of weird. Second, the patriotic nature of the day is still going to get the attention of our world because that existed already. And so whatever the church does in celebrating the mission on that day is going to compete with fireworks and picnics and singing God bless America, right? All all that's going to be a part of that tension. That's the way it was in 320 AD when, when Julius suggested that churches everywhere celebrate the birth of Jesus on the same day as this big Roman celebration for the invincible son. Now, eventually, the Roman Empire became more and more Christianized. And so, eventually, the celebration of Jesus' birth began to take more and more of that territory. 
But what also happened is because they always both, they both existed, sometimes they tended to mix. So also what happened is that at times in history, sometimes we would see it more than others, December 25th became sort of like Mardi Gras. Are you familiar with Mardi Gras? Yeah. Here's how this works. From very early, like as soon as Jesus rises from the dead, the church did begin to put a big emphasis on that resurrection. I mean, that, that's like it for us. And so they did begin to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on a regular basis. Somebody said, hey, it would be a good idea if maybe we took 40 days leading up to that event to where for 40 days people would partially fast, they'll do without something, uh, and, and a time for us to just be humble before God that our hearts could really absorb the holiness and the greatness of this miraculous event. That's called what? Lent. That, those 40 days are called Lent. The first day of Lent is called Ash Wednesday. It's called Ash Wednesday because ashes in ancient times, as well as in the Bible, denote a repentant attitude. So sometimes on Ash Wednesday, you will literally see people, right, walking around with, with a little dot of, of ashes on their head. The day before Ash Wednesday is Mardi Gras, which is French for Tuesday fat. We call it Fat Tuesday. Here's the reason. The point is, if I'm about to have to fast for 40 days, if I'm about to deny myself for 40 days, this is my last chance to indulge my appetite. And so Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, became the day for sinning as much as you possibly can. It is the day to be out of control with your appetites for as much as you possibly can because you're about to enter 40 days where you're not supposed to. You get the picture? It's this religious holiday that suddenly turns into an opportunity for sinful behavior. I'm telling you, that's sort of what has happened with Christmas numerous periods of time in history. For hundreds of years during the Dark Ages, even during the Middle Ages, it became an excuse to engage in evil behavior. So you got this religious holiday, but you also have what, what was a pagan holiday. And so put that in the middle of it falls on this day that is the darkest day of the year, this season where there's so little sunlight and there's so much cold and people are just ready to get out and do something. And what happened is it became a time for this outlet that in the middle of the darkest and the coldest days, we'll just make this an out-of-control holiday. I ain't making this up. You should know your history. So there were times that mobs of people, mobs of people would roam the streets and they would storm the homes of well-to-do citizens demanding that those citizens give them food or something to drink. You are familiar with, we wish you a Merry Christmas, 
right? We wish you a Merry Christmas, right? Isn't that a beautiful song? Do you know how that song goes? Here's how part of the song goes. Oh, bring us some figgy pudding. Oh, bring us some figgy pudding. Oh, bring us some figgy pudding. And bring some right now. We won't go until we get some. We won't go until we get some. We won't go until we get some. So bring some right now. Glad tidings we bring. Isn't that goofy? Isn't that goofy? But you know why it's written that way? Because it's telling this historical story. That's exactly what people would do. They would show up at well-to-do homes. They would demand something from it. And then if the people did not respond, sometimes they would just take what they wanted. In the 1600s, there were periods of times where the Puritans outlawed Christmas because of the behavior. There were places in the world like London where Christmas Day was a time where women and children did not venture out of the house. Christmas was banned in Boston from 1659 to 1681, or 15, or no, 1681. Yeah, 1659 to 1681, banned in Boston. In 1828, the New York City Council met and actually developed a special unit of the police force created to deal with the rioting and chaos on Christmas Day. But there was a place on the planet that changed the way Christmas was celebrated by many people. And that place is not the North Pole, and it's not the little town of Bethlehem. It was Martin Luther's Germany, as in the Reformation, Martin Luther. Martin Luther so loved the story of Christmas, and when God used him to spark the Protestant Reformation, he took full advantage of the story of Jesus' birth. And because of Luther and the Reformation, Christmas in Germany became this, this, this holy day. A, a day where they, they wrote Christmas carols, there, there were trees and decorations, there were, there were, you know, food that people would make, families would come together, and it became a, a time for a simple worship of a newborn Savior. On Christmas Eve, I'm going to give you a little more of that story to help us understand how we got from there to how that impacted here. But the point that I'm trying to make for you as we dive in today is that Christmas as we know it, like as we know it, the traditions that we, it, it is relatively a modern thing in terms of it only goes back about a couple of hundred years in the English-speaking world, the way we know it and process it. And so when it comes to the church being frustrated over what the world has turned Christmas into, right? Because I, I get that a lot. Just people frustrated with missing the point of Christmas and our world is just way off track. I'm saying history seems to point to the fact that those early Christians and actually most any Christians before us have had a much harder fight with this thing than we do today. This fight ain't something new. 
This what in the world is the world missing is not something new. It has always been the fight. So what do we do with that? Well, I want us to do with that what these Christians have always done with that. And today we're going to use 1 John chapter 1 to help us process it. So 1 John chapter 1 is the scripture I want you to see today. It was a part of our reading this week, and we're just going to start with verse 1. Check it out. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, if you read your Bible much, you, if you read the Gospels, hear that, and you're like, that sounds really familiar. Well, the, way it so- the reason it sounds really familiar is because 1 John is written by John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, which here's how he starts, not in 1 John 1.1, but John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, familiar language, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with the beginning. The beginning of Christ. John goes, let's, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. And when we talk about the beginning of Christ, here's the answer we get. There's not one. <laughs> we, we ask these questions of where did this begin? And when it comes to Christmas, where did this begin? And where did this tradition start? And why in the world do we do it that way? But if we get to the anchor of it all and we go, okay, if Christmas is about Christ and where did that start? The beginning, there's not one. That's what John reminds us of. He speaks of the preexistence and the eternity of Jesus Jesus, our life, was there when creation began. He is eternal. He has no beginning, and he will have no end. Jesus is not part of creation. He he is the, the beginning. He is the source of all creation. All life comes from him, John says. So, here's what would you see. The history of Christmas, all right, as we know it, is relatively modern. It only goes back a couple of hundred years in the English-speaking world, the way we do it. But the history of the Christ of Christmas is a different story. He goes way back. As in, in the beginning, he was. He was the first and only person in history who actually existed before he existed. Isn't that wild? What I mean by that is before he was born, he was. Before he was conceived by Mary, he already was. Micah 5 tells us that his origins are from old, from ancient times. There was one day that Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus makes this statement that your father Abraham, Abraham was the one they respected more than any other. Your father Abraham, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. 
how would you see Abraham? And Jesus' response was, before Abraham was born, I am. Oh, and when he said, I am, they knew he was taking the name of God himself. Jesus exists before the foundation of the world. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And so when we start to get a little frustrated with all the stuff that's going on around us and where we think people are missing the mark, it would do us well to go back to the mark and go, let me just be reminded at the size of the one that I am celebrating here, the size of the one who always has been, always will be, nothing came into existence without him. He holds it all together. And then John says, verse 2, the life appeared. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So he starts with the beginning of Christ where he goes, there's not one, always has been, and he moves then though, do we understand that the, the, the miracle of the fact he appeared, the appearance of Christ the eternal and pre-existent Son of God became the Son of Man, and he was born. That's what we celebrate on Christmas Day. Now, again, we don't know the exact date. We don't know. We don't know the exact date. But that's what we are celebrating this week on Christmas it is one of the great themes of verse John, 1 John. A lot of people don't realize that. John's going to bring it back later in this letter. He will talk about the importance of what's called the incarnation. And it's, it's as though probably by this time, John is a much older man. And yet when you read this letter, you get the feel he has never, ever gotten over the fact and he has not lost one ounce of the wonder and the amazement that God showed up on the human scene. He appeared. When I think of Christmas and I think of the incarnation as God becomes man, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty simple. It, it's, a, it's a funnel. I, there's just this imagery of a funnel for me, you know, a funnel you use to, to pour something that, that might be large into something that is smaller. And so for me, it's this image of trying to imagine uh, up here the bigness of God, right? The immensity and the eternity of God himself, perfect holiness, limitless honor and glory, matchless wisdom, unfailing love. Right, All the O words about God, right? his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, all those things about God, not just a God who, who fills the universe, but he is the God who holds the universe. He, he is not a God that just fills up time. He is the God who holds time. He is bigger than it all, king eternal, immortal, invisible, right? He dwells in unapproachable light, and at the incarnation, 
all of that is funneled. And born in this manger in Bethlehem, he becomes flesh and dwells among us. And John just keeps saying it, I saw him and I heard him and I touched him. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I'm going to tell you that I don't think that it's so much the mystery of the incarnation in the sense of the divine and the human nature that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. I, I don't think it's so much the mystery of that that makes people stumble over the incarnation. People can argue that, and it's, it's a miracle. I mean, we're talking God here, so to explain that, we can explain it, but, but that's not going to come together in what we're able to do. That, this is, this is a, a miracle of God. The stumbling block that really exists for the incarnation is that if it's true, then every single person in this world should obey that man. If this is true, and this is who Jesus is, then every single person on the planet should obey him and should follow him and should worship him and should serve as he calls them to serve. That is the stumbling piece of the incarnation. We don't get to, to pose as, as self-sufficient anymore because he's the one who came and said to us, look, we are all sick with sin and we need to come to him for healing. We, we no longer get to depend on our wisdom to make life work because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things and this man Jesus becomes the measure of all things. But that pushes against my rebellious heart. And it pushes against your rebellious heart. Who does he think he is? God. God. That's who he is. It's interesting that the old apostle John by the time he gets to chapter four of this little letter, he says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. You wanna recognize him? Every spirit that will acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Woo! He says, only the spirit of God can break that rebellion in my heart that would push away from a God who comes to, to, to be with us, only the Spirit of God can open my heart to see the truth and to follow him. And therefore, John says, this confession, if you, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, he's like, then you don't belong to God. That's a big deal. And oh, it is a big deal, because watch where John takes this next in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. He just keeps saying it. I saw him. I heard him. I mean, come on. I don't mind telling you. 
the more I read the Bible, the more, the more I think about the day that I will actually feel the embrace of Jesus. Because you understand, he's still Jesus. Like, he, he, he's still glorified body. One of these days, we get to see him in heaven and like John to be able to say, I can see him with my eyes and I can hear him and there will be a touch. And I just hear it in John. He's like, every time we rerun these verses, he's like, I, I, I've seen him and, and I heard him so that you also may have, check out this word, fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says, I want to make sure you understand where all this is going. This is about a fellowship with Christ. This is about the fellowship of Jesus. The word fellowship, sometimes you'll hear it, it's a Greek term, koinonia. Weird word, but you'll hear it every once in a while as people teach, koinonia. It simply means this, this personal sharing of something that, that is significant and in common with others. It's the pleasure of being in a group of people where you see eye to eye on things that really matter. It's having similar values and, and responding with the same kind of affections to the stuff that really counts. So here's his point. If you say that you have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, it means that you have come to share the same values that they have. It means that you believe what they believe, that you love what they love, that you delight in spending time with them, you love to include them in all that you do, you treasure spending time in eternity, getting to know them better. How does that fellowship grow? God draws near to you in his word. And I don't, I don't know that we can ever say this enough. This last year, we, we, we've, we've taken the challenge to read through the whole Bible. We're literally a week away from finishing that. Next year, nothing to lose. We're going we're gonna to read through Luke and Acts. And so I want to challenge you that if you've never done something like that, join us first week. We want to, everybody within this next week, we'll be distributing that, that reading plan for Luke. But here's what's changing. Most days you won't be reading five chapters, you'll be reading five verses. And we want to put some teaching material to that that helps you know how to take three or four or five verses but really dig in. And, and, and last year we got this big overview. This year we want to zoom in and go, okay, what does this mean? And what does this phrase mean? And I, what is he saying to us? Why do we care about that? Is it just so that we can check some boxes and go, this year we read the whole Bible and next year we, we're going to study Luke and Acts? No, it's because when we're in God's word, he is drawing near to us. And then in response to that, we are praying and we are drawing near to him. That is the picture of a fellowship. It is this, God, what you care about, I want to care about. How do I know that? I read your word. Your spirit speaks to me through that word. 
word. God, change my heart on this. What needs to be rearranged? This needs to stop in my heart because it's, it's, it's pushing me away from you. That is called fellowship. And John knows that he owes this gift of fellowship to Jesus. The one who put on skin and became the friend of even tax collectors and sinners. John would tell us in chapter 2 of this little letter that anybody who denies the Son is denying the Father as well. No one who denies the Son, right? If they deny the Son, they don't know the Father. In other words, fellowship with God comes only through Jesus Christ, his son. So this is the way I would, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restate what he just gave us. I'm going to kind of go backwards. Here's what he says. Since our fellowship is with the father and his son, the only way that we can cult, cultivate fellowship with you John says, is to proclaim to you what we know about the Son, what we've seen and what we've heard. That's what he says. Since we got fellowship with the Father and the Son, the only way that you and I are going to share that fellowship is to declare to you what I know about the Son. In order to experience that fellowship, John tells them what he believes about Jesus. Here's why this matters. So many times I watch people, even in church, who attempt to preserve what they call fellowship, but they do it on the basis of a shared experience. If everybody does this spiritual thing, uh, now nothing wrong with, with spiritual experiences, nothing wrong with you know, being on mission trips together, or uh, maybe there are some things that we do share. But biblically, those are not the things that tie fellowship together. Eventually, that will just end. John wants to make sure we understand the basis of the fellowship that we have together. It is anchored in the truth of who Jesus is. That's what ties us together. When John wants to cultivate that fellowship with a group of people right here, he writes this letter of theology. When Paul wants to prepare a, a missionary fellowship to help him on his journeys to get all the way to Spain, he writes a theological book called Romans. It's not just this shared experience that ties us together. It is the truth of who God is, we call it theology, the doctrine that the Bible gives, that is what makes us stronger. When we do that, there is an obvious place where this lands, and verse four is that little verse, and it's our last verse. We write this to make our joy complete. John says, I'm telling you this, that our joy may be complete. And so the place he ends in our little text is the joy of Christ. First comes this tremendous joy of knowing God, experiencing fellowship with him. But there is a part of that knowing him 
that creates in us this hunger for more. And it's not because he's not enough. That's not the point. It's, it's not because we need more than God. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a part of how he's designed us that in knowing him, our joy in God's fellowship is made complete in the joy that others have that fellowship with him. That's where it goes. This is not some me and God are friends for life and I'm just going to camp out over here and enjoy God's friendship and enjoy God's fellowship. I'm going to enjoy his presence. You do get to enjoy all that, but the camp out part is not. That's not how he designed this relationship with with you and I to have with him. I'm I'm thinking, John's thinking back to what he heard Jesus say in that upper room right before the cross. John 15, Jesus said, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So this joy is tied not only to the fact that you have this relationship with him, but it is that this relationship with him becomes in you, this desire to see other people have this relationship with him, that joy is made complete. I, I heard the little quip the other day about a psychiatrist who received um, an email from a patient who was on vacation. And the patient wrote this, I am having a wonderful time. I wish you could be here to tell me why. I like that. I'm having a wonderful time and I wish you could be here to tell me why. To those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we have joy and we know why. We have joy and and we, we know why. Or maybe you don't have joy. And the question is, why? There's one thing that I am fairly certain of, whether most people acknowledge it or not. I'm going to say for most people in our culture, There is this point right after Christmas. All right, I'm going to say it's, it's right after whatever, right, the Christmas thing looks like for you. Family's been together. Gifts have been open, right? Papers flying everywhere. All that's over. You got everything you wanted. Like everything, everything you could have asked for. You, you, you got the gifts that you, you really wanted, right? The, the family got along, right? A- A- Aunt, Aunt Janet didn't throw ham at anybody and nobody had a fist fight in the, in the middle of dinner, right? It's like everybody got, everything you could have dreamed went right. And for, I'm telling you, most people in our culture, Maybe it's an hour later, sitting in a chair, and here's the thought. Was that it? Was that it? 
And I'm telling you that that thought is an echo of a greater reality. That that joy that people are searching for. Christmas traditions are not the answer, dude. Now, see, I'm one of those guys that believes most of the Christmas traditions, I I love making them a part of my family's celebration as long as we don't lose sight of who's the anchor here and what's this pointing to and what are we choosing to celebrate out out of these things. Okay. But I'm also saying that the best of traditions at Christmas don't make a good God. They don't make a good God. You hear me say this every once in a while, your spouse, as wonderful as they may be, they are not a good God. Your kids, as proud as you may be of them, they don't don't make good gods. Your work, I, I love my work. I do. I truly It is crazy blessing for me to get up every day and get to do what I feel like God's called me to do and that you would allow me to do that. I love it, but can I tell you, my work is not a good God. That joy is only found in a fellowship with Jesus. And if that joy is missing, it may be that there is not yet that fellowship between you and he. The whole reason that he came, or it may be, perhaps you know that truth and you have declared that you love him, but if you are camping out with this news, if you, were, if you are playing the me and Jesus got fellowship and we're good and, man, I'm looking, one of these days he's coming back to you. If you are camping out with such good news, then you are missing the joy that, that John's talking about here where he goes, if you want to see this joy complete, it is, it is understanding. We have this relationship with Jesus. We have this fellowship with him. But it is also to see others become a part of this fellowship. This week, many of us will be stepping into some prime opportunities to share who we know. Some of you, I know it's crazy year, but some of you still going to be with family. Some of you will still have some opportunities to be with people that you care about so much. And I'm just reminding you, this is the territory. It's already Christmas. It's kind of the whole purpose of why we're getting together. It is the opportunity to speak of that which you know, to speak of the one who has affected your life. And I know every year people look back at me and I can, I can see it. Rarely do they say it. Sometimes they will. But Jeff, Jeff, you just don't understand. You don't understand my family. You don't understand the history. You don't understand what happens. If they, if they don't like what I say, you don't understand the ramifications of what that will cost. Jeff, I'm afraid. And so today, I want to just echo the words that were spoken to us a long time ago. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because you have been given news that will be great joy for all people.
because in the town of David, the Savior has been born to you. And he is Christ the Lord. That which was from the beginning, this life appeared that we may have fellowship and our joy may be complete. My prayer is that you have a Merry Christmas, but may that Merry Christmas be anchored in a joy that overwhelms your soul because you cannot keep silent about this one who has changed everything. Lord, I thank you for maybe a place in Scripture that we wouldn't expect maybe to be the first place to think about Jesus' birth, and yet that old apostle John, as, as the years roll on, God, I can, I can just hear it in him. He never, he just never loses an ounce of amazement and wonder at the miracle that he now understands. And God, my prayer is the same for your people this week. My prayer is that there would be something of a stirring of that wonder of that miraculous God in the middle of all the tradition. And God, will you give us wisdom to recognize that sometimes we're searching for joy in ways like like even if we got rid of all the traditions, that won't bring us joy. Jesus, only you bring us joy. And so I'm asking that this week, God, whatever the situation may be, as people gather with families, as, as gifts may be opened, as, as food may be shared, God, in all of that, may our hearts just be driven toward this fellowship that we have with you. And in turn, it becomes this desire. We want to see the people around us no such fellowship and out of that there is a joy that explodes this is what we've been looking for God I ask that by your spirit you would empower your kids by your spirit you would remove our fear you would give us boldness God, this week, by the power of your spirit, may we speak truth and love. And even this week, may the fellowship grow. God, I pray for those who may be hurt today. I pray for those who, whether it's sickness or, God, some who have lost loved ones. God, this time of year, There is just something extraordinary that happens in our heart where where hurt just sometimes feels more magnified because of this season. God, I pray that we might know the difference of recognizing your presence, of knowing the difference. God, what, what no one else can do, you can do 
to bring peace and healing and joy. God, I ask it, and I ask it in the name of Jesus believing. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and stand together if you're with us at our campuses today. And, and um, there are sometimes uh, at Christmas, and certainly this Christmas Eve, it'll be the case where uh, what we sing, the kind of close is, you know, kind of quiet. And today doesn't feel like that. This is joy. And this is a joy that we are called to declare, to proclaim, to shout, to express. So as we wrap this up today, I encourage you, sing together with a joy that is real.